Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So I don't mean throw out the numbers that they're not important. They are. But they need a different focus. They need to focus on, well, the things that I put in the strategic compass. Number one, what is your compelling purpose? Number two, what are your values? What do you stand for? And how do they show up in behavior? Number three, by what method do you plan to achieve your compelling purpose? So what are your strategies and methods? Number four, who are your customers? What do they want and what do they need and how do you know? And then number five, what are your measures? What are your process measures and what are your results measures? And so you see that the first four flow into number five. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. This show is all about insights and explores how transformational moments of awakening have helped propel the lives and careers of remarkably successful people. These major breakthroughs teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. On this episode, I interview Marsha Dashko, author of the best-selling book, Pivot, Disrupt, Transform. Marsha's a thought-provoking and caring contrarian who asks provocative questions to challenge assumptions. She's not afraid to stand up and ask, why are things done in a certain way? Just because something's common practice doesn't mean it's right. She shares the story of why she started her consultancy practice after both her mentors passed away in the same year. This led to an extremely successful journey helping Fortune 500 companies examine their beliefs and best practices to see what should stay and what should go. As you'll see, Marsh is a catalyst for strategic change, innovation, and transformational leadership. Her approach is based on a theoretical foundation of management, not fads and best practices. As examples, you'll see why she thinks creating a mission statement is basically a waste of time, how internal communication actually does more harm than good, and why she doesn't believe a manager should focus on motivating their team members. Instead, she suggests a business should have a compelling purpose, foster collaboration, and create an environment where employees are self-motivated. Marsha will turn what you think about leadership on its head, and I'm so excited to share her philosophy on this episode of Inside Out. Marsha Dashko, welcome to Inside Out. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited too. And I feel like we could probably talk for 
a week. Yeah. I'm not even kidding. It, there's just so much ground to cover and so much knowledge that you have to share. What I loved when I read your book is that you challenge what is often considered a a norm, a way that people manage and lead others that we might just assume is the way that it should be done or has to be done. And, in, and even in your own life, you, you share a story, and I'll, I want you to talk about this at some point, but you share a story about how you didn't challenge, but you asked the question of, of, your, of your son's teacher, why do you grade? And I just love that story because I think it encapsulates one of the core messages that you share, which is we often assume that we should be judging grading and putting a number or a metric around success. And what this causes is this stress and this unneeded tension to try to hit a certain number or to get your gold star as it were. And so I love that analogy for business. And so before we get into all of that, I want to hear your story. I want to understand how you came to identify with this philosophy. And it's much more than just that, but the philosophy that you have and the books you've written, because there's so much to cover. So let's get started with your story. Love to hear and go back as far as you feel would be valuable. Like I often find that sometimes it's the earliest insights that are the most meaningful. This show is all about those moments where we have the light bulb go off and all of a sudden something clicks and it changes the trajectory of our life. So would love to hear your story, Marcia. Okay. Thank you. And Oh, how far back to go? Well, I could start when I was four years old. I went to a cornfield with my dad and my grandpa. And my dad said when we got out of the truck and they were going to be taking down some corn and so forth. And I, my dad said to me, don't get lost. I'm like, okay, I'm four years old. I'm going to go bouncing around. So I went walking in the cornfields and then I couldn't find my way out. And I started to cry because I was lost. And my dad said, where are you? And I said, I'm here. And he would say, where are you? And I was crying and crying. Well, once he heard me, then I stopped crying. And he said, keep crying. And a parent (laughs) never tells their child to keep crying. They say, always say, stop your crying. And that was probably when I think back, one of the first times where I got, got a jolt to what I believed in. I believed, oh, my dad will find me and I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to stop crying. And what happened was I said, why? And he said, if you keep crying, then I can hear you and I can find you. And of course, I got in trouble, but it would, you know, that was in the, in the past. And my story <laughs> from then went on to, I was excruciatingly shy. And then, but I was a pretty good writer. I'm a natural teacher. And I love bringing out the best in children and in adults and their natural leadership. And my first career was in corporate communications and marketing. And then I was in that field for about 10 years. Then I was hired by a small consulting firm and the owner was Dr. Perry Gluckman. And he said, I want you to do business development. I said, what what am I selling? Because I was doing marketing. And he sent me off to Dr. Deming's four-day seminar. Dr. W. Edwards Deming was pretty famous then. He was 
commended for helping turn around Japan after World War II and helping them become a global competitor. And long story short, I met Dr. Deming. He knew that I was working with Perry. And between the two of them, they decided to mentor me. And that was when I began to learn that what we believe and the quote unquote best fads and management practices that many employees, many leaders, many managers are faced with day to day are the things that we go to work, we go to school, and we struggle, we decline, we fail. Our organizations fail because one after the other, another, 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 belief and assumption and those best practices and fads are heaped on top of each other. And we don't question them. We just get into a habit of following some of those things, whether it be in companies, huge corporations, education, healthcare, nonprofits, the military, government agencies, it doesn't matter. We get into old systems. And so I began to learn from Perry and Dr. Deming to question everything question why are we doing it this way what are we believing and it goes back to what's our purpose what's our aim what's our intent and is it connected with the systems that we built or did we create silos as we went that's kind kind of how i began you know kind of quiet and shy and then all of a sudden meeting learning studying for a few years with my mentors there's a different way. There's a way mm. to not only change, because if it's just change, change management is a fad. You can, you, people change and then they can change back. But if they transform, it's like the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Once you transform, you don't go back because there's a better way to think, a better way to behave, a better way to lead, a better way to learn. So we keep we need to keep challenging assumptions and beliefs and practices where we struggle and move forward. Oh, love it. Love it. And I, I love the analogy of transforming, meaning that you're not going back, right? If you're a caterpillar and you become a butterfly, there's no going back to being a caterpillar. You have transformed. And so one of the things that you shared is that you didn't just go once to Dr. W. Edwards uh, Deming's seminars. You went repeatedly over and over and over again, so much so that you started to develop a relationship. He became a mentor. I know that he passed away, I think, in 93, 94, and that was a pivot point for you. wonder if you could talk about that pivot point. But then also, you mentioned something else, which I do want to uncover and dig into, which is the systems and the processes. I, I don't know if you've read the book, The E-Myth, but I, I love this book, The E-Myth, because one of the things it focuses on is the power of developing really, really tightly understood processes and systems. And, and often what's, what's breaking within an organization, you mentioned this in your book, it isn't the people, it's the process, right? And so I want to unpack that a bit because I think it's a really profound insight, something that I think I took away reading that book and then as well as in your book, that is so important to not forget 
that often we judge or think it's the person when in reality, it's the process. So I know there's a lot there. So I'll let, I'll let you take it from there. But yeah, I would love to know about the pivot point, And then let's talk about process. Okay. So in 1993, I lost both of my mentors. Both of them passed away. And I thought, now what am I going to do? And I thought, well, we have clients and they still need help. And over that time in in those four years or so, my mentors had taught me, I had moved from marketing and business development to then consulting because one day Perry said to me, you have to help us. And I said, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) That was always my thing. I don't know how to do that. And he said, don't worry, I'll teach you. And that's when, again, they both, you know, dug in and I was studying harder than I ever studied in college. And I was a pretty good student, but I was reading five to 10 books a week, having four or five hour conversations with Perry or, you know, periodically with Dr. Deming when I would see him. And so the pivot was, I didn't have a dream or a plan to become an entrepreneur, to become a consultant or anything. I just was always in the mindset of, I have a very high work ethic. I don't let people down. They taught me a lot. They sometimes expected me to do a lot more than I thought that I could do. And they put me into leadership situations where I had to step up and I just had to figure it out. But based on the philosophy that of that they taught me about focus on quality, focus on serving customers, focus on continual improvement and innovation. And that is, is part of the focus that I created when I was working with my clients. So I basically, after I lost my mentors and we had our clients, I just continued to work with them. And then I went from working with Dow Chemical and Pepsi and HP and so forth to developing my own clients that usually would hear about what I was doing or they heard about Dr. Deming's philosophy and they would call and say, can you help us? And they had a lot of different kinds of problems, but fundamentally many of the same problems. So whether it was chain of car dealerships in Hawaii owned by Mr. Honda's daughter or PBS television network in Washington, DC, these organizations, all systems became my clients. And it was a matter of working with them to help first the the leadership team understand there's a different way. They can pivot, they can disrupt themselves, and they can transform their own thinking and the thinking of their organization and make a difference with their organization and their industry and society. So it goes beyond their own thinking and it makes a difference in society. Yeah. So, and and there's so much to talk about just in what you just shared, not, not least of which are these principles that you mentioned that you learned and that you've 
since used to help your your clients. And so you, you talked a little bit about the systems, but I want to, again, I want to go deeper on those, but let's talk about the principles and the philosophy that you learned. I know one of the principles is, is really thinking about the customer and the customer experience. And I, I really appreciate that. As you know, I worked at Tesla and Solar City, and that is so much a part of Elon's vision is make the product so incredible that people will just want it, right? And so if you think about it from a customer's point of view and make the customer happy, that that's a huge component to success. But let's talk about the philosophies that you learned and and let's share a little bit about each each of those. Okay. So the while it's easy for people to say we want to focus on continually improving in quality and serving the customer to give them a great experience. Those concepts, those themes are stupendous. They're necessary. They're essential. But people, most people, and I would say when I started meeting senior executives and I had everybody on a pedestal, especially Fortune 500 executives and so forth, what I realized is they didn't understand what Dr. Deming called the system of profound knowledge. They didn't. And most leaders do not understand the basics that they should learn in order to optimize the system and to really lead like never before so that they can transform their organizations. They can pivot, they can innovate, they can, they can, we could have the, you know, like, well, Elon Musk, you know, and Steve Jobs all over the place, you know, in, in, in one sense, they're geniuses, right? There are other personality things that are, that's a different story. But when it comes to how can we pivot, how can we transform, how can we make a difference in personal lives, in education, our education system is a disaster. And right now I'm so ecstatic today that the University of California system announced that they will not base any admissions on SAT scores in the future. I am so ecstatic. That was probably one of the best announcements that has come out of the academic world in more than a decade. So, you know, back to leaders. Let's just take leaders in general of all kinds of systems. What their job is, is to optimize their system and and make a difference in society. And so how they can do that is based on the principles, they need to understand system optimization. That means they need to understand that everything works together as a system. So whether you're talking about the human body or how a car operates or how a school system should operate, all the pieces need to work together and support each other in order to serve. So it's it's like all of the major body parts have to work together in order for us to live and survive and breathe and so forth. The car the major parts of the car have to work together in order for the car to be driven. So system optimization, knowledge of a system is number 1. Number 2 is uh, leaders have to be statistical thinkers. That means that they look at data over time and they don't make decisions based on saying, oh, well, 
our numbers are up compared to the data we have this month compared to the data we had a year ago. That's taking two data points out of context. Of course, the news is not that numbers go up and down. The news is that there's variation in everything and and leaders have to look at the data over time. So I think we're really lacking that in you know our world that we don't have enough systems and statistical thinkers. And then we third, there are four parts of the, the system of profound knowledge. Those are the first two. The third is theory of uh, psychology. How do people learn? How that you know, and people learn in different ways. How do people think? And then the fourth is theory of knowledge. And that is basically how do people plan, implement, study, and then say what works, what doesn't work, and do it again. And the faster they work that PDSA cycle, the plan, do, study, act cycle, it is a tool that they can use that will give them a competitive edge. Every time they go around the circle, they learn more together. And that knowledge, the faster they do it, and if their competitor is not, gives them the competitive edge. Mm. So those four parts have to work together. It's not, they, and they can't take one part of it and say, oh, I really love statistics, so I'm going to focus on that. Or I really love psychology, and I'm going to focus on that. It's how do those four parts of the system work together? And that's what I learned from my mentors. And that's what I then what I've done for the past 25 plus years is I've worked with leadership in an organization to help them learn and apply that philosophy of leadership and management. If an organization wants to not struggle anymore, if it wants to not face failure, if it wants to improve and innovate and serve customers better. That's the thinking that, you know, they, they need to adopt. And that means with starting, number one, what do they need? What are the things they need to stop doing? Because mm. otherwise, if they bring in a lot of new thinking and pile it on top of the old stuff, like performance yeah. appraisals and holding individuals accountable and doing those, they need to get rid of the bad things first and right. do that right away. I love that. And that's one of the things that stands out from your book is that early on you asked the question, do you, and I'm, of course, I'm not going to say it exactly as you said it, but right. Do are you doing performance reviews? Are you holding people accountable? Those sorts of things, which, you know, goes back to your statement about the SAT, which, you know, for the audience listening to you talk about that, the reason why you believe that is, and why that's so important is because you, and I, I'm, I'm guessing this, but I, I have a feeling I'm right, but you're, you you do not feel that's a, the healthy evaluation or a way that we should really be thinking about, is this a student that should go to this institution or not? And so what I want to do is I want to understand more about what are the habits or norms that you're challenging when you go into an organization and you look at the way they're acting today, what are those things that they're doing along with, along the lines of, you know, holding people accountable? What are some more of those? Cause I think getting those norms crushed and removed is important, right? Yes. You can't have a foundation of 
the wrong things. You want to build the foundations with the right things. And then once you've eliminated all of those, then you can start thinking about optimization and statistics and psychology and knowledge, those four elements and building from there. And so let's, let's, I'd love it if we could start with the norms that we're, dis, that we're losing and then let's go into the four parts that we're building. And, and if I'm getting any of this wrong, let me know. I'm trying to track with you. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're learning really fast. I can tell you read the book and uh, even the ahas that people get from reading the book, if they can just number one, start questioning and say, and I, one thing that I've created is called the strategic compass. It's very simple. And the, and so while I'm simultaneously teaching people this, the system of profound knowledge, meaning systems thinking and statistical thinking, and which means you let's take a look at your data over time. Don't make decisions based on reactions. What is over time? For is there a certain like is there a certain time period that would make sense? You know, obviously some some companies are older than others. So do you mean just a longer period of time? Like just. Uh, trying to understand the, yeah. the the nuance between looking at something year over year versus maybe a longer period of time. Right. So depending on the organization, depending on, there are two types of, you know, kind of in general data to look at over time. One is process data. So if we're looking at a process, how often does that process repeat over and over? Maybe there's a production process and you can look at how it repeats itself 30 times during the day. And you can learn every time it repeats. And so um, the, the point being that you wanna decide what are the process measures and what are the results measures. If we look at, um, let's say a, a company's results measures and we look at, we're looking at revenues, maybe we, we wanna look at that um, week by week, we want to look at it over time, month by month. But even more valuable would would be to if we're looking at it by months, can we go back for multiple years and mm. look at well, is it trending up? Is it trending down? Is it stable? And so you're you always want to be looking at. And asking the questions based on that process or those measures that you want to collect, how many data points minimum do we need? Generally, a lot of statisticians say, you know, minimum of 7, 10, 14 data points. Um, I mean, having two or three, four data points, it's not going to be good enough for decision making. But sometimes you have to look at the data and... Because of an emergency, you have to do the best you can by looking at the data that you have in context, break it down as much as you can. And so there's the analytical piece, but it's like an accordion. It's like you have to be analytical simultaneously. You have to be systematic and strategic. So the accordion goes in and out. And also that's how a leader has to think from the big view and serving the customers and moving into the future also analytically. So it goes back and forth. Um, uh, Leaders have to be strategic and they have to be systematic and they have to be, at least they have to get the information to be analytical. Obviously, let's say that a, a company president, he 
he has the background of being an engineer, but he can't go into those details all of the time and, and being analytical when he has to run a whole company of, you know, 500 or 5,000 or 50,000 people. That makes sense that you, you, you kind of have to manage to do multiple things in harmony and and you use this analogy of being a conductor too it's like uh i really love that that analogy in your in your book wondering what in addition to the the okay i'm not i shouldn't be looking at metrics and the accountability those questions you ask at the the beginning i wonder if you could share some of the questions some of the other things that you see corporations or leaders for that matter doing within corporations that you would suggest maybe examining and looking at not doing those things. Yes. And some people believe that um, you can't manage what you can't measure. That is so not true. And uh, I, I like to say, especially during these times. So when people tell me though, Oh yes, you have to, we have to measure everything in order to manage it. I say, oh, I'm so excited to hear from you about, especially through um, times of crisis. How do, you, how do you measure your leadership? How do you measure your communication? How do you measure your kindness? How do you measure your giving feedback, giving recognition, giving appreciation? It goes on and on. Those are the most important things leadership, communication, checking in with people. And, you know, do we count those things? No, it's those quantitative measures. And those are the things that drive many organizations. Those are the results of everything else they've done. So when I oftentimes when I work with organizations, they have a one or two day management team meeting per month. And I ask them, what do you do in that management team meeting? And they say, we go over the numbers. And so what I ask them to do it, well, I, I basically say, well, okay, we'll co-create the agendas. I'll give you, if we have a two-day management team meeting, I'll give you 20 minutes at the end of day two to go over the numbers if we have time. <laughs> and so they look at me really scared and puzzled because they think, oh, what are we going to talk about? So I don't mean throw out the numbers that they're not important. They are, but they need a different focus. They need to focus on, well, the things that I put in the strategic compass. Number one, what is your compelling purpose? Number two, what are your values? What do you stand for? And how do they show up in behavior? Number three, by what method do you plan to achieve your compelling purpose? So what are your strategies and methods? Number four, who are your customers? What do they want and what do they need and how do you know? And then number five, what are your measures? What are your process measures and what are your results measures? And so you see that the first four flow into number five. And if you don't have the first four working together, then you won't get the ideal number five in your results measure. So people that say, oh, these are our targets. These are our numerical goals. 
I would say, and oftentimes I've said, they say, oh, at a, at a management team meeting, next year we're going to increase sales by 4% or 8%. And then I ask the question, why, why 8%? Why not 10%? Why not 5%? Why not 20%? And they don't have an answer. They've never given me an answer. They pick a number and then shoot for it, but it doesn't mean that they have the, they optimize the rest of the system. They answer the other four questions in order to create a plan that will achieve it without, um, without destroying part of the company because there are so many practices in place where they sub-optimize. For example, can you imagine a sales team that does not have numerical goals, quotas, incentives, and commissions? When I work with an organization, we get rid of all those. Right, and I love this thing, this thinking. Okay, so tell, tell us why. Well, because it sub-optimizes the whole system. It in in just like performance appraisals, it increases internal competition, but then begins to eat away internally at the organization and the people against people and teams against teams and product lines against product lines and this program against this program. Who's going to get the money? And so the company starts to you know, self-deflate and, you know, self-erode when instead, if all of those unnecessary numerical goals and targets and measures are taken away, then people can work together focused on the compelling purpose, focused on great customer experiences, focused on continual improvement and innovation, focused on the highest quality they could ever hope to achieve. And what I, what I help the, the leaders especially learn, and all the people through the company, because everybody has to learn, when they can come together and say, we're going to focus on these few things together what they can achieve is unbelievable. And once I, I teach that to the executive team and then begin teaching it throughout the organization, I share with them, okay, once you learn, one thing you have to do is, and once the people learn, get out of the way of your people because they will take you where you've never been before and where mm. you've never envisioned before. I had one company owner come to me wanting help, and he had a $30 million company. He said, Marsha, we have all these problems, and he shared them with me. And he said, I want to take the company to 34, 35 or $40 million. Can you help? And I said, I don't know. I have to take a look. And I began working with them, and over three years, about a week a month, I worked with them and took them from $30 million to 300 million. Wow. 
that that's ins- oh, amazing and and the numbers do speak for themselves and there's some nuance here though and I want to I want to get some clarification from you because one of the things you talk about in your book is this whole nonsense that is the creation of a mission statement and 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 when i say nonsense that normally what happens is and i've been there you get in a room you throw a bunch of names on a whiteboard that that people believe in and then you try to sort of wordsmith them into a cohesive message and it really it's it's different than when you're talking about the compelling purpose but to somebody listening to this they're hearing they may hear them as the same thing just like they may hear looking at statistics, but then you throw away the numbers. I wonder if you could talk about the nuance between those two, because you're talking about statistics over time versus competitive metrics and like artificially designing a number that you're, that you're targeting that's sort of arbitrary. And you're, are you're talking about, you know, we want to, we want to create, we want to have values. You talk about values, but you don't want to create a, a mission statement. So you want to have a compelling purpose. So give me, give us, give us the, the framework with why those are different. And I, I totally, I understand they are different, but for somebody listening who may not fully grasp it, who hasn't yet read your book, talk, walk us through it. So, well, you've hit on, you've hit the, on, on the key concepts because you said the words arbitrary and artificial. And even when it comes that you hear a lot of people talking about authenticity, it's just the opposite. What we get in habits, we get into organizations. Oh no, we even start school. We we um, we start living. We can be toddlers, and parents start doing it when they say about their children, "Okay, who can get." their pajamas on fastest. So immediately we introduce competition, this arbitrary, artificial competition. What does it matter? What's the purpose? So that's what, the same thing with grades in school. Why grade? And I've, I've asked the teachers, why do they grade? And um, I did it with, the, with my son's first grade first grade teacher when it was her first night to meet the parents and her first year of teaching. And she was, she's super, I will never forget her super sweet teacher, super dedicated to the children. But she said, she started to explain how she was grading. And I raised my hand and said, why do you grade? And she did not have an answer. Of course, she was taught to grade. She had just gone through, you know, college and to be a teacher. And that's what teachers do. I am a teacher, therefore I grade. I am a boss, therefore I judge and criticize and blame. I am a, you know, manager and therefore I hold you accountable for the the results of this system that I created. So um, when it comes to about your, your question about the mission statement, Um, it is a habit and people I have seen strategic from a mission statement to a strategic plan that is, you know, a, a binder that's five inches thick mission statements, strategic plans that can't be, you know, communicated on a page or two. They are bad habits. 
that need to be changed, just like smoking. You know, when somebody stops smoking, my friend Peter Schultes used to, to say when he would speak to a group, he said, he, people would say, well, what do we do instead? You know, what do we do instead of performance appraisals? And he would say, well, if you stop smoking, do then you need to stick something else in your mouth and light it up? <laughs> so we, we need to, we're not thinking. We need to think about what we do, why we do it, for whom we're doing it. And so when it comes to a mission statement, your experience is so common. You know, whiteboard, you know, one day retreat or whatever, throw the ideas up there. And pretty soon people get tired and frustrated. And usually it gets assigned to a few people to go away and wordsmith this and bring it back. And we'll all shake our head because we don't want to deal with it anymore. That's so true. And I went to a, um, I was facilitating a, a one day like, strategic thinking session for a school district and they were doing exactly what you described the 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 how many words can we fit in a paragraph (laughs) um after like a hundred words and my head is ready ready to explode i just started asking questions and i finally got a little exasperated and i said Why did you go into teaching? So we've got the superintendent, a bunch of principals, probably some teachers in the room. So some representation of the school district. And I said, why did you focus? Why did you go into this industry? Why did you focus on, you know, education? And the room got quiet and they said, we love, you know, they, we love learning. We love seeing children learn. And I said, then, could you just have as your compelling purpose to create the joy in learning? Period. Hmm. Because if you can say it in a phrase, like, to create the joy of learning, then you don't need to memorize a paragraph that no one can recite. It's never happened yet that people know their mission, quote-unquote, statements, unless they get them focused and make them short and memorable and connect them with who they're serving. So, But I pointed out to them that whether that that's, phrase to create joint learning you can ask the superintendent you can ask a teacher you can ask a janitor you can ask a school nurse or you can ask a first grader why are you here what are you trying to accomplish and any any of them can say to create joy in learning and if it's the janitor then you go by what method By what method do you create the joy in learning? And he says, it is my job to keep the the school clean and safe for the children to come and learn. So it fits. And that's how you create a system that is optimal. Because everyone 
knows a compelling purpose, can, can communicate it, and understand how they fit into it and who they're serving. Then what are the measures? Well, it's pretty easy then. So let's talk about measures because uh, again, going back to this, like I want to, I want to play the the person who is not fully grasping it. And I think you just laid it down right there on the mission statement versus the compelling purpose. Let's face it. Mission statements, they all kind of sound the same. We do blah, 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 because the blah, blah, it's just, they all sound the same. You could swap one for one company and put it on another company and you wouldn't know the difference. And so, but, but let's, let's talk about the, the measure and because we measure in school with grades, that's how we measure if, if someone's successful and you're suggesting that you're going to question the norms. I, I, I know that about you and I, we just barely met and I love that. I love that you, you question the norms. So when you question the norm in designing a compensation model for salespeople or having competition within salespeople. It sounds to me like one of the things that that you disagree with is that that's creating internal competition when instead they should be working together. And so I want to just underscore that because how do you create an environment where they are working together? How do you get them to do that when you're not we're all conditioned to think that people are, you know, well, they want to make more money or they're, we're competitive by nature, all of those things. For those that think that, how do you coach them through that? And how do you get them to understand and believe that it could be done in another way where they are working together? And, and how do you create that atmosphere where it happens? So when I, when I work with organizations, first I go in and I assess where are they at? Uh, where where are the where's the competition? Where's the suboptimization of the systems? Where's the fear? Where that's the eroding people and productivity and, and therefore profits? Where are things not working? And so I go in and I I look through the lens of the system of profound knowledge because that's what I've been taught. So I look what is sub suboptimal, what are people struggling with where's the organization declining? And there are sometimes an organization financially is doing well and internally is suffering. And mm-hmm. so the question is, how much better could they be doing? So they think they're doing fine. And one time I had someone that I was talking to and he said, oh my gosh, Marsha, I, I own a lot of radio stations. And for decades, I thought that I've been doing just great. But now I'm questioning how much greater could I have done in the past Mm -hmm. 20 years with all my radio stations? And that's one of the big questions. It's like, if you think you're doing okay, well, maybe you're doing okay. Maybe you're doing great. But if you have a lot of these internal competition systems and silos and barriers and internal fights and stuff happening, if those things were not happening, how much better could you do? So that's why that's, I take a look at that first. I want to see, okay, where could they go? How could they improve? How could they innovate? How could they create new markets? How could they disrupt the competition? How can they pivot from what they're doing today and be more phenomenal? There are many companies out there that they're they're alive because they have had to keep pivoting, whether it's Intel or Nokia, they just can't 
you know, be a one shot wonder like a lot of companies are. And like even in Silicon Valley, we've got more than 6,000 startups, more than 90% of them will fail. Why? They don't need to. Uh, they have good ideas, but something is breaking down. So whether it's a startup company or a Fortune 100 company, the same thing we can look at IBM. Um, seven years ago, IBM had over 450,000 employees. Today, they're down 100,000 employees and their stock price is cut in half. Where are they going? Well, they're grasping for straws. They're trying to partner with winning companies like an Apple in order to survive. But they've got some major pivots to do. They've got some major transformation to go through if they're going to survive. Do you find common pitfalls or things that companies are doing that are causing them to not be optimized because, you know, you, you talk in your book about the difference between optimization and maximization, you know, and, and the nuance there, but yeah, optimize, you use optimize by design. What are the ways that companies are most frequently lacking from an optimization perspective? They, um, they're doing the opposite of the strategic compass. They don't have a compelling purpose. They're all over the map. They're not focused. They don't prioritize. That's very lack of strategic thinking at the top, lack of systems thinking at the top. They're focused on the bottom line. They're focused on numbers. They're focused on, if they're a public company, mostly they're focused on stockholders, shareholders, and they will get the results that they might want in one sense, but destroy their company in the process. Mm. They're firefighting. They're, they're, and just, I want to hear, I want you to keep going, but just to kind of double click on what you're saying, they're spending all their time making sure that their shareholders are happy and that they're trying to meet this number. And that takes away time from spending on working with the, you know, figuring out how to make the customer happy. And, and, and so, yeah, I want, but I don't want to, I don't want to steal your thunder. Keep, keep going. Keep, uh, keep, keep, uh, so, so preach. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they focus on one, one part of the system where they also have, if they're thinking about who are we serving, well, they've got to serve the, you know, the customer and the future customer and future markets and society and the community and the employees and partners and vendors. And so that's all part of the system. And they're focusing on one little part. And they're focusing on, you know, one, generally, um, a few set of numbers like revenues, profits, you know, market share, they're focusing on such small things that all of the other things that would optimize the system, all of the things that would help create those better um, end results get no attention at all. So creating the important, you know, systems and processes, creating, focusing on developing the natural leadership and contributions of everyone in the organization is profound, is, is essential. I remember one time being with a, with uh, uh, an executive team, kind of a, an expanded executive team at an offsite. And we started in the afternoon, how many people do you have in your company? And they said, oh, 
about 500 and I said, how many of them are leaders? And they look around the room and I'm, they're thinking, why is she asking us? She, she can see how many of us are here, like there were 16 people. And they, so the, the VP of HR said, she counted and she goes 16. And I said, why aren't you doing your job? And they looked at each other puzzled and I repeated, why aren't you doing your job? Your job as the leaders of this company is to develop leaders. And so your answer should be closer to 500 when I ask how many leaders are in the company, if you're doing your job. And I shared that a week later, I was having uh, breakfast with a friend who's a, he had just retired four-star um, admiral. And I was sharing that story with him in Hawaii. And the minute that I said, you know, how many leaders do you have in the company? He knew exactly where I was going because especially in the military, that's their job is to develop their people. So the, so we continued in the, this questioning mode. And the next day we started off and I was asking some questions. And then the vice president of sales said, after I asked a question, he said, wait, wait, don't answer that. Let's <laughs> think first. So by then, by then they were on to me. I wasn't going to settle for the standard, the status quo. If they wanted to improve, if they wanted to lead in their industry, if they wanted to, to thrive and survive as a company, if they wanted to have an amazing career experience, then they needed to think different. Yes. Oh, so powerful. So, okay. So, you know, clearly there's a, there's a huge gap in having the compelling purpose. There's a, a huge deficit that results from having too narrow of a focus as a result of trying to please few people instead of thinking about, as you said, like vendors and customers and employees and, you know, the, you, you gave a long list. And so I'm curious if I'm a business owner and I have a 500 person company or a thousand person company, what would be the, the immediate suggestion you would give? Because if they push back or if they think, oh, well, how do we do this? We're spending all our time on firefighting or trying to manage the metrics. Like what is the advice you give them to have a more broad focus on the things that matter? Um, while I teach and uh, while I'm a strategic advisor, um, I'm not sure I, uh, my, my clients will argue probably, but I was going to say, I'm not sure that I advise. And the reason I say that is because in my mind, I feel that it's most powerful when they discover it for themselves. For example, one organization, I could tell any organization, get rid of your performance results. And then they'll flounder because they won't know what to do instead. And everything is linked together. So they have to understand, you know, well, then how do, how do we figure out how we're going to pay people? Because that the performance appraisal is tied to compensation system. So what I do is I either put them in situations or in conversations or in exercises where they discover something is in the way. 
So they come to me. So I'm teaching them experientially, put them in those situations, have them struggle with whatever they're struggling with in their company. And then I'm teaching, teaching, and they discover, and they come to me and they say, Marsha, you know, we're doing performance appraisals. I don't, I don't think that we should be doing those. Isn't that counter everything you're teaching us? And I go, oh, really? Why do you think that? And we begin to have that conversation, whether it's, you know, one-on-one or the group of managers or executives, whatever. When they discover the walls that they face and because they're running into them right in their face and they say, Marsha, I think it's these, these, these commissions are getting in the way of our salespeople working together. I'm like, really? You know, <laughs> and then, well, tell me about that. What, uh, you know, let's look at what else could we do? So it is not always me giving them advice. And the reason is, if it's my idea, they will be more resistant to it. I'm, I don't want to tell them what to do because then they don't discover it. They don't learn it deeply. They don't own it. And they don't change it for the transformational change. They don't transform their thinking and their behaviors and their actions for the right reasons. So for yeah. that reason, I try not to give them too much advice. And I, I facilitate and guide them to what they need to self-discover, which they can mm. because everybody – well, one thing that I also try to create is like joy in learning and joy in work. So there's almost you know, no manager that I meet that doesn't feel that they can't motivate or is constantly trying to motivate their employees and I, I say, well, I don't recommend that. They strongly believe that they can motivate people or they should be motivating them more or learning how to motivate more. And I tell them, that's not your job. And they go, why? I said, that's not what the power is. You, can, you cannot motivate people unless it's for a short term and fear-based and you don't want to go there. But your job is to create an environment where people are self-motivated, where they can contribute. That's harder work, but that's your job. Create the environment where people have joy in learning together, joy in working together, joy in improving together, and joy in innovating together. Oh. Wow, what a what an amazing, amazing, amazing distinction to make because I think so many leaders think it's their job to motivate, but in fact, their job is to create an environment where their people will be self-motivated yes. and will love what they're doing. Yes. And 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 what a great distinction. And 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 I just want to comment on, you know, the what you said just prior to that, which is if you are advising them and saying, "Hey, do this, do that," What you're effectively doing is you're saying change because I'm telling you to change when in fact they should change because they know they have to change and not just change but transform and become a butterfly as opposed to just changing and maybe going back to being a caterpillar. And so 
in order to do that, you need to be a bold business leader. And I wonder if you could share, and I want to talk about some of the qualities of a bold business leader. When you think of the business leaders who have the ability to make the transformation, what are those common traits? Um, foundationally, there I always think there are two. And I, once I start talking, I'll probably add 10. But of the, <laughs> the two, it's are, okay. It's okay. the number one is openness to learning. If they're not open to learning, I cannot help them. And that, there have been times where I've seen it and I've said, thanks, but no thanks, I cannot uh, work with you. And they, they want me to because they want to pay lip service to things. Like years ago, what, probably 20 years ago, everybody and their brother wanted to grab onto a TQM program, Total Quality Management. This is not a program. This is a personal transformation that everybody has to go through if they want to transform. Um, they, they, have to per, they have to personally transform before they can transform their organization, before they can help transform society and make a difference. So they can't pay lip service to the hottest new program out there. So the Lean Six Sigma and the Black Belts and the, the TQM programs, all of those, you know, it's just... It, it's beyond window dressing. It's all junk that should go into the basement. But um, <laughs> it's it's like um, like I like to say, you've got a piece of moldy bread and you want to put fresh strawberry jam on it. Well, it's still going to be inedible because you can't eat that green moldy bread. Um, doesn't matter how you try to dress it up. So the same with people. You can't just because you give them a title you give them a big corner office and a, um, I guess we don't want corner offices anymore, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, the, the titles and the salaries and the perks and the, all these things, that doesn't make a leader. A leader is not about positional power. A leader is open to learning, open to listening, and has tremendous courage because to transform themselves and their organization, it's they're going to have to do really hard things that are not comfortable. And most of the time, they're going to be outside of their comfort zone because that's the only place that the pivots, the disruptions, the transformations occur, occur is at the edge and beyond of the comfort zone. And one of my friends the other day, she was... Um, She's an amazing person and uh, was received the highest honor, for, highest civilian honor from the Air Force. Anyway, she she told me that I'm a walking revolution. That's how she <laughs> described me. But that's what it takes. It's um, and so that openness to learning. People have to commit to study. Yeah. Okay. So last question is, is what's, what's on your plate now? What are you most excited about that you're working on now? And how can the audience find you or your work? What would be the best way for them to continue learning from you? So, um, oh my gosh. Um, it's funny because in this pivot that we go through is everybody's going through in some way, shape or form with the pandemic. Um, in the first few weeks, I, I was seeing on Facebook and so forth that people are baking bread and cleaning closets and, um, uh, you know, they're, they're 
cooking and organizing. And I'm like, who has all that time? I am slammed. And I have, I, that's like, I, I had my own to-do list and, and clean the office and clean the garages on it, but I'm nowhere close. And I've been working at this about six or seven days a week, 10 to 14 hours a day to, um, I, I guess I'm re- I'm creating a lot of new things, and I'm and um, I'm I'm here for people that need to talk uh, talk through things, um, and but I'm developing a lot of new material uh, all around how do people pivot? How do you pivot your organization? How do you pivot an industry? How do you dis- disrupt so you're not disrupted? How do you transform so? Um, I'm in a, a really deep creation place, and um, and also my my pivot point, my current pivot point, when the pandemic hit was, I was finishing up um, consulting with some major clients, and I had been on the road two or three weeks a, a month, and I pivoted. Um, I was pivoting o- over to professional speaking. And boom, hit brick wall and no events, you know, no conferences. So I basically focused on what are all the things that I can create to help organizations virtually, whether that's, you know, it, whether it's, you know, one-on-one or a team of people that need help, you know, pivoting. Um, If it's a student who had a who had a part time job and that you know now they are not a, a restaurant waiter anymore? Okay, my questions immediately are okay. We need a pivot here. What can you do instead? There are lots of companies hiring. How about this, 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 and this? There was um, a gentleman that called me and he said, "Marsha, I don't know how I'm going to make the the mortgage payment." payment um in a few weeks he talked a little bit about what he used to do in 30 minutes we had a plan for him to go create a new a new um business and like like it he could bring it up and running within a week and so i i hope he's highly successful but it it doesn't take long it just takes sometimes somebody from the outside to guide you through the thinking process. And so it can be, you know, um, inspiring, you know, 5,000 people um, just having, um, just sharing with them that they can pivot. How do they do it? How does the thinking change? What are the opportunities, opportunities, possibilities, needs that you're going to meet that you're not meeting today? And that's we've seen a lot of pivots um, in in the world in society as as car manufacturers are making ventilators, as beer um, distillers are making hand sanitizers, as um, people are taking um, toaster ovens, refiguring them and making mask. Um, uh, not ventilators. Um, they they basically clean the mass sterilizers, mm-hmm. mass sterilizers. 
So we're seeing pivots in service and in products and, you know, across the map, but, but, but there are the leaders that are doing this, the creative people, the people who are most creative. This is what I've been saying the past couple months. The people who are most creative and take their ideas and do something with them are the ones that will survive through this, who will thrive, who will revive, whatever it takes. They will make it happen because they're not the ones that are crying oh, woe is me and I'm the victim and what is somebody else going to do to help me? They don't think like that. They mm. think, what am I going to do to help other people? And that's a huge transformation for some people to think that differently. A hundred percent. And I couldn't agree more that right now we are in honestly a time where there's more opportunity now than I've ever seen in my lifetime because there is so much disruption happening by necessity, right? There's so much change needed. Therefore, those that are able to adapt and provide innovative solutions to help us through this and be part of the new normal, you just have to have the mindset that you are able to do that as opposed to the mindset where you're a victim and you're looking for a handout and you're looking for someone to blame. Yeah. No, it's got to be the complete opposite. It's it's using this as a chance to pivot and be proactive about creating the next chapter of your story. And so with that, Marsha Dashko, I am so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for being on Inside Out. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out. Oh, my God.